Thank you, Grace. Friends, let us pray. Lord, on this sacred day, we are aware that we are among those who get to enjoy the blessings you desire for all of your children. The freedom and safety and privilege to gather and worship. And on this sacred day, we are aware that such blessings are not able to be enjoyed by all of your children. So as we encounter you in scripture and in song and in prayer, keep us ever mindful of the humanity we are a part of, the humanity we are estranged from, the humanity you claim as your own. This we pray in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So there is a saying that goes something like, everything that is old will become new again. As it turns out, humanity is not as creative or innovative as we think we are, as evidenced in the recent Super Bowl halftime show, fashion trends, political debates, current events, and even conversation topics. You see, more and more, I find myself having the same conversation I had about 10 years ago after I graduated from seminary. The year was 2009, the financial markets had just crashed, and the mainline church was in rapid decline. The words church and crisis were being said quite frequently in the same sentence. But as I said earlier, everything old simply becomes new again, and this, my friends, is an old conversation. In 1944, in the midst of World War II and the atrocities of the Holocaust and the troubling passivity of many of the Christian churches, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following in a letter to a friend. What keeps gnawing at me, he writes, is the question, what is Christianity? Or who is Christ actually for us today? The age when we could tell people that with words, whether with theological or pious words, is past, as is the age of inwardness and conscience, and that means the age of religion altogether. Almost 80 years later, Episcopal Bishop Michael Curry wonders the same thing. He recently wrote, it is not an exaggeration to say that Christianity in America is in danger of being hijacked not by emergent secularism, but by, but, but by being popularly identified with right-wing political agendas, by the propagation of a so-called prosperity gospel, and far too often by being associated with thinly veiled religious animosity, by sometimes subtle, religiously disguised racial bigotry and supremacy, nationalism and nativism instead of genuine patriotism, the exaltations of narrow-mindedness, antipathy towards scientific knowledge and learning, sexism, homophobia, and on and on. In other words, crisis. But as a person of deep faith, Bishop Curry doesn't conclude that the church as we know it is done. Instead, he writes, this moment fraught with problems and complexity is likewise pregnant with a new possibility for the church and those called Christians. This crisis may be a genuine opportunity to reclaim our origins, our true identity as Christians, by reclaiming Jesus of Nazareth and his way of life. 
if that is indeed true, and I hope it is, well, then the church has always been in crisis because the church has always been at the same time fraught with problems and complexity and at the same time pregnant with new possibility. The question remains, how will we respond to this current moment? Will we bury our heads in the sand and hope that by the time we emerge, all will be as it once was? Or will we seize the opportunity to go back to what makes us the church, what makes us Christian in the first place, Jesus Christ? I think we should go with the latter. And Lent is the perfect time to do that. So over the next few weeks, we are going to ask ourselves bold and yet fundamental questions like who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he say? Where did he go? How did he live? How did he die? And what does it mean that he rose again in glory? And in doing so, we are going to ask, answer the most essential question of the Christian faith. Why Jesus? Why do we love him? Why do we follow him? Why do we confess him as our Lord and Savior, as the Son of the living God? And so today we begin our journey with a passage from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 16. Hear now God's word for you today. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? And they said, you know, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, side note, friends, this is usually where we stop reading this passage, but we're going to go on today, okay? From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, remember Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Now, if someone were to ask you what you were doing this Sunday morning, you'd probably say something like, I'm going to church, or I'm going to First Pres, or if you're feeling particularly religious, you might even say, I'm going to worship, right? But the last thing you'd probably say is, I'm going to spend my morning confessing. Because in doing so, you would immediately conjure up images of a cramped wooden confessional with an eerily silent priest listening to your laundry list of misdeeds. And that's not exactly what we're doing here. But that answer wouldn't be wrong. Because whether you are aware of it or not, we are gathered here this day for the expressed purpose of confessing. Yes, to confess our sins just as we did a little while ago, but also to confess what we believe to be true, what we hope to be true, who we hope to be true. The life of faith is, after all, a life of constant confessing, acknowledging, admitting, declaring, affirming, professing, and as Peter shows us in Matthew 16, sometimes even blurting out the good news of the gospel. In our passage for today, we get a front row seat to Scripture's first real confession of faith about who Jesus is, the central and pervading question of not only this particular text, but of Jesus' entire life and the life of the church. Now, whether it was his disciples or demons, the huddled masses or the religious elite, the question of Jesus' identity was always in the water. Questions like, say, isn't that one of Joseph's boys? I always thought he was going to grow up and become a carpenter like his dad. It's too bad he got kicked out of his hometown, his poor family. Or say, isn't that the guy who healed that paralytic in Capernaum? News of that spread like wildfire, even though I heard that he was trying to keep it on the down low. He must have something to hide. Or say, isn't that the guy who keeps preaching the crazy message of blessed are the poor and the meek and the persecuted? What kind of scam does he think he can pull with the support of those who have nothing to give? Who does he think he is anyways? And yet regardless of the questions and criticism that swirled around his identity, there was no denying that this Jesus of Nazareth always attracted a crowd, following him from place to place and town to town, waiting to see what he would do next and hanging on every word that he said. And this was especially true for his disciples. Now, while we know the beginning and the middle and the end of this story, it is important for us to not always jump to what we know. For example, right now, it is important to remember that as devoted as his disciples were, they too had their legitimate questions and doubts about Jesus' identity. And that uncertainty was on full display in the events leading up to our passage for the day. Scripture tells us that in Matthew 15, that Jesus had just fed a crowd of 4,000 with only seven loaves of bread, a miracle that the disciples bear witness to. And yet just a few verses later, after the crowds had left and they get back on the road, they get nervous and anxious and worried. Why? Because they don't have bread to which Jesus responds, you of little faith, do you still not perceive? Or as a more modern translation might put it, really? <laughs> really? 
Do you still not get it? Do you still not get me? And the answer, of course, is that they don't. They don't get it. They don't get him yet. And so there Jesus and his disciples are just sitting around waxing poetic when Jesus comes back to the question of his identity, starting with what the people are saying about who the Son of Man is, to which his students eagerly reply with, oh, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, at that point, one might assume that Jesus would wrap up the conversation by either doling out gold stars or jumping in and just telling them the right answer. But instead, he does something unexpected, unprecedented, unbelievable. Because at that point, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, turns to this motley crew of ragtag, perpetually doubting, rarely gets it right disciples, and asks them what they think, what they perceive, what they believe to be true about him. But who do you say that I am? Now, unfortunately, scripture doesn't tell us, and then there was an awkward silence. Or, and then the disciples all begin to look away and stare at their hands. Sure, they had their suspicions about who he was, but no one knew for sure. That is, except for Peter, our most annoying yet endearing disciple, who does what he always does and blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. He proclaims, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. In that moment, I like to think that even Peter was surprised by what he said. In that moment, I like to think that the words flew out of his mouth, and when he actually heard what he said, all of a sudden, it clicked. The realization that the why was inextricably tied to the who. Why did Peter love and worship and follow Jesus? Because Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. But as Jesus points out, this isn't the kind of knowledge one can obtain by reading the right books or by putting in enough hours of study. It isn't kind of the belief one assumes by talking to the smartest people or consulting the leading experts. It is a confession of genuine faith that is made possible by the simple yet remarkable truth that ours is a living God. Not a historical God, not a celestial God, but a living God. God, one who will not be limited to or bound by the confines of a history book or even scripture, and one who will not be so limitless or boundless that we can't locate him in the world around us. For in Jesus Christ, we confess our faith in a God who lives with us, for us, and beside us from Bethlehem to Berkeley, Capernaum to Kiev. Why do we love Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? Why do we worship Jesus? Because he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. But if we, like Peter, actually confess that to be true, that God is alive, well, then that means the search for God, the pursuit of Jesus, the quest to understand who he really is, continues for us today, right here and right now, in this time and in this place. Because Jesus is not satisfied with what people are saying about who he is. He wants to know what you have to say about it. Who do you say that I am? Why? 
Well, as we see in our scripture for today, it is not so that Jesus can test our orthodoxy. Jesus doesn't turn the question on his disciples to see if they have the right answer or to catch them if they have the wrong one. He wants them to know who he is. He needs them to know who he is so that they will be ready for what is to come. The suffering, the loss, the hardship, the pain. He wanted them to confess with their mouths so they could believe in their hearts the abundant truth that Paul writes to another group of struggling disciples. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God. As it turns out, the saying that everything old will become new again might actually be one of the most profound theological truths. One of Jesus' own making. Just like those who gathered to see who Jesus was over two millennia ago, we too gather today to see who Jesus is for us, with us, and beside us today. We too struggle with the mystery. We too struggle to be faithful. We too struggle with our doubts and our questions. But that, my friends, is a good thing, a sacred problem, a holy crisis. So as we continue to journey together this Lent, remember that Jesus turns the question back at us. And in doing so, may we accept that this moment, fraught with problems and complexity, might also be pregnant with new possibility for the church and for those of us that are bold enough to call ourselves Christians. That this crisis may be a genuine opportunity for us to reclaim our origins, our true identity as Christians, by reclaiming Jesus of Nazareth and his way of life. May it be so. Amen.